This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. Hey, this is Elminster of Shadowdale, and you're listening to The Tome. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm James Intercasso. And in this episode, number 265, I've hijacked the rest of the Tome Show crew to talk about Maestro, the third book in the Homecoming series from R.A. Salvatore, who we'll be talking to later. And joining us for this review, and later in the interview since I couldn't make it, is none other than Mike Shea. Hello! Mike Shea, how the heck you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you guys? People might recognize Mike Shea as a regular on the roundtable, a regular on various Tome Show shows, and one of the three co-hosts of Behind the DM Screen. Woo! And recently hammered through a whole ton of Salvador books. And recently (laughs) listened to a whole bunch. You listened, right? The audiobooks? Uh, Both. I actually was reading and listening. Oh. Not, 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 Not all at the same time. Hardcore. Well, very good. And so we are all primed to talk about the latest Salvatore book, Maestro, the controversial Salvatore book. <laughs> Is that uh, fair? <laughs> I, 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 I mean, so I, I've purposely... We'll, we'll, we'll get into uh, it. Yeah. I, but I purposely avoided reading any kind of reviews. Is it controversial in other in reviews? I, I have no idea because I, I also typically don't read uh, okay. other people's reviews because I want ours to be pure. Yeah, that's the way I felt. <laughs> so there we are. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the book Maestro. Uh, James, because yes. you, you haven't talked to us about Maestro yet. So why don't you start us off? What is Maestro about? What is the story? Oh, man. So uh, <laughs> it, it is not the place to jump so glad into the R.A. Salvatore canon. That is for sure. Um, it is uh, it is the third book in this trilogy uh, that comes after the Companions series. Uh, Drizzt and uh, well, Drizzt has been around forever, right? But all of his old friends, the Companions of the Hall, are back um, because they got reborn, and that's something that happened like four books ago. But anyway, they're yeah, back. Which, which, by the way, the the Companion series is a decent jumping on point if you wanted to. You know, get into recent drift without going back to the backlog. Agreed. <laughs> I agree. That's that's definitely a good place to. Mike, did you have a thought on that? Yeah, because I'm so my my wife has been reading him. She read Crystal Shard, um, and she read the the three those three books. She wasn't crazy about the Dark Elf trilogy, so I think she read the first one, and she's been reading the. Um, uh, Legacy of the Drow series, and and I'm kind of thinking like you know I, does she really want to read 20 other books before she kind of catches up? Um, and I, I suggested that maybe she start with companions, but with all the stuff with Dahlia and all the stuff that goes on in Neverwinter, I really don't know where a good starting place is. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly right? references that going way back, right? Yeah, but yeah. but they sort of explain at least some. Of, I mean, yeah, if you I accept think you that, can follow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you accept that there's you know 20 books you didn't read, right? Um, it gives you enough information to kind of know what's going on. I think so. And companions is such a fantastic book. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a great book. It's really, really great. Um, this, I would say, Maestro. <laughs> You know, it's not my favorite uh, book. 
um, you know, uh, in in his canon. But it's also not my least favorite R.A. Salvatore book. This one's a little more middle of the road, and it feels that way because there are some really cool, great moments, and then there are some moments that feel a little forced, um, or or a lot forced, I guess I should say. And I think you guys, uh, from talking to you, you've already recorded your interview with Salvatore. I know you got into that a little bit, but essentially the plot of the book is it takes place during the Rage of Demons storyline um, and there's a couple of things going on. The sort of A plot is that Drizzt and his rival slash friend slash former uh, murderous <laughs> sort arch, of arch nemesis. Yeah, arch right. nemesis, yeah. Uh, Artemis Intrieri and It's like a hundred uh, years ago. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If you can't get over it in a century, yeah, right. you're never going to get over it. And Jarlaxle, right, are um, are all making their way to Menzo Baranzan to rescue Dahlia, um, who is Drizzt's former lover. And I, I guess she's all three up there. She sort of had a thing with at some point. Did she with uh, Jarlaxle? Uh, I feel like when she's first introduced. Uh, or no, no, I guess not. Right. Yeah, so when she was first introduced, she was with that vampire guy. Yeah, and she's killing all her her signals. Yeah, that right. was kind of a signature. I mean, it's, so e- I guess- it's easy to think that she was because Jarl Axel's with, with everybody and everything. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> dragons at a time. <laughs> so there's this A plot, right, where they're going into Menzo Baranzan to to rescue her, and it leads to through a series of um, you know, twists and turns, sort of leads to Drizzt having to fight Demogorgon. Uh and then there is uh this B plot where uh Caddy Bree and Gromph and a bunch of other characters, you know, sort of wizardly types in R.A. Salvatore's universe are rebuilding the host tower of the Arcane. And we should um, point out, now that you've summarized big chunks of the of the plot, that we are going to spoil this book. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so that is, uh, that's sort of the, the overall plot. Um, you know, you, the book actually, one of the things I really, really appreciate about the book is its ending. I do think, um, you know, it, it kind of ends in an interesting cliffhangery way that even though the book wasn't my favorite book, it did make me think like, oh man, I got to read the next one. Um, so, you know, and and even more than cliffhangery, it, it felt satisfying. Yes. Like, it, yeah. it felt like an ending. Like, there was an exclamation point. And there's yeah. certainly things going on in places where it's going, but you know, a lot of times, uh, especially with Salvatore's books, with the Driss books, he, like he said before in interviews, that he doesn't think about writing trilogies, right? He's just writing one continuous story, and he lets the publisher figure out how to brand it and how to chunk it up. Um, and so that's how he thinks about it. And so sometimes that means that one story ends and just flows right into the next story, but we have to wait a year to get the next story, you know? So, uh, this one feels like it hits a, a final point. Yeah. yeah. There was, there's one other, uh, large thread in the book that I want to bring up mainly because it was, it was kind of my favorite part, which is sort of the, the, the rise of the power of even El Bayenre. Mm-hmm. Right, like her, she really like her. Her whole kind of arc started in the last book, um, but this is the one where she's her whole power play is really rising up. I think a lot of the book, the book spends a lot of time in Menzo Branson, right, and in particular with the with the strange goings ons of Evenel. Yeah, yeah, which actually leads me to a question for you guys. So maybe you actually asked Salvatore this: Who is the maestro? Yeah, we book? did, we did, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And, and, and did he, he say said, it was even now? No, he did the right thing, which is, I don't know, you tell me. Right. Uh, I see. Uh, I mean, because I, I, yeah, the Sorry. obvious answer is Jarl Axel. He's, he's explicitly referred to as the maestro. The cover has a picture of him on it, you know, without mm-hmm. a face. Whatever, right? That, that, yeah. that That's the easy answer. Um, but I think you could argue that there are other maestros yeah, I mean, as well. To me, to me, it really felt like Evenel. Like she's yeah. it's really running everything. Well, and in it, some, to some degree, I... And, she and, literally has a puppet on a string. That she yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to some degree, and, and as I go back into the previous book or two, um, well, at least the last book, when the whole Rage of Demons things really started, it, it feels like... To some degree, Loth is the the maestro here too. Although she yeah. doesn't play that role in this book, the things that she did in the last book play out like she you know she manipulated them to happen this way. So yeah, was she was she in this book at all? Like last book, she was busy beating the crap out of other demons, right? Um, uh, no, I don't think she actually had a a point of view scene yeah. in the whole book. Yeah, which was a little disappointing because then it's like now I'm confused. Like, what was the whole point? Yeah, I guess. Like, and, why Why did she manipulate things to have Demogorgon sent to the Prime Material and be trapped in the Underdark in the last book if in this book she was going to use her minions to send Demogorgon back to the yeah. Abyss? And it's like, well, <laughs> what did you accomplish in that month yeah. or whatever, you know? Right, right, yeah. Well, maybe Abyss time is, is weird. It's like, <laughs> you know, one month in the Underdark is well, one year in the, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so well, there's one, yeah, I always do that. I love screwing with time. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the one other thing is we kind of don't know what she did in the Abyss while they're all gone. Right. So we had a whole book now where they've spent a lot of time but there wasn't anything talking about what was going on in the abyss. Yeah. So there may, there may be something had happened and we just haven't heard well, about and it. And I've asked Salvatore about similar sort of plots like um, the big plot that he had uh, er- earlier in, a, in was it in the Companion series with the Dural War and the Silver Marches and all that kind of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And when it all wraps up, I'm like, so so what did they accomplish? Like, like what was the point? <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's, you get sort of a vague answer, you know, loth, chaos, whatever, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, that's, that's not particularly satisfying. Like, it seems like there was a decent cost to the, to the drought to engage in that plot and like no reward, nothing happened. As a result. <laughs> right. Well, and it does feel, I mean, this whole series since the companions and I love the companions. I think it is a great book. He is finding more and more ways to bring back, people from the very beginning of this series, you know, even else back mm-hmm. and um, Grandmaster Kane comes back through the magic of a headband in this, not in this book, but in another series. And it does feel a little like almost like a, a gonzo D and D game. Like death does not matter at all. Like well, you're going to die. We're going to find a way to bring you back. And, and so Greenwood, yeah, so- did, Greenwood did the same thing with the, the time jump and whatever with his books and the Elminster series and, and whatever. Um, and to some degree that's cool because you want to see your favorite character come back. And to another degree, it just feels like you can't move on and you can't progress and you can't, you know, accept that things change even as an author in the world that you created. Like it's okay for some things to be different and some characters to die and stay dead and whatever. Although I like the new even a lot more than the old one. Yeah. Yeah, right. She's not like, you know, hanging out on like a big floating thing all all time looking all gnarly. <laughs> it's kind of interesting that she's like 2,000 years old, though. Yeah, she's got this weird like she's she's young and innocent and beautiful. But at the same time, you know, as you mentioned, she's got 2,000 years of, of knowledge and, and right. information. And um, she's a chosen of Loth, whereas before yeah. she was like the high priestess, matron she, mother, yeah. whatever. 
she's got like a level of subtlety that's way above and beyond what anybody else, even in Menzo Baranzin, has. Yeah. Yeah, she's clearly like the puppet master of the entire city. Right. So, yeah, I really like the new Evenel. It's just, it does feel a little bit like, so is there anybody who stays dead? Like, are we going to see, um, are we going to, is Print going to come back next? Uh, did they hint at that? They they had, um, because <laughs> they, you know, he's now like the, he's got like a summoning, who is it? Uh, the horn. Is it a horn? Yeah, and he can blow it and, and Point comes out. And didn't Point like look at a statue of himself and kind of turn his head? Like yeah. he sort of recognized. Like he might actually be sentient and recognize it? Yeah, like he, right. there's something there. So it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. My vote, uh, if if R. A. Salvatore is listening, is uh, for Catterley Bonaduce of the Clerk <laughs> Quintet to come back. Uh, I love Catterley. Let's well, more Catterley guys. He could help. Oh, but I really. But, but see, that's the thing about like you know, Point's death was really meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same vein, like I felt like Catterley's end in was it Ghost King? The Ghost King. Yes. Is that what it was with the the, the weird dragon psionic l- lich thing? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, that he has to keep drawing his ghost has to keep drawing sigils to keep that. Yeah. I I and I've used bound. I've used that in in a campaign like they they went to the spirit soaring at one point and there's just sort of, you know, for for as far as they can tell, there's just sort of this glowing line that constantly traces itself around the grounds. Huh. Uh, and they can't figure out why or whatever, and you know they cast some spells and divinations. Like, oh, there's a weird ghost just wandering a circle around the place the whole time. Well, let's just leave that be, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's a cool little feature. That it's those little things in the realms, and Ed has a million of them, right? But there's those those little kind of features of the realms that are really cool. Uh, Catterley's end was really meaningful uh, to me. Like, I don't want to see him come back, not because he wasn't a cool character, but but because he had a cool and meaningful death. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, so, I, so far, I haven't minded the way he's brought people back because they've all been pretty creative. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I like like you know, even else return was pretty interesting. It's they're not like ham fisted sort of ways that they're brought back. I mean, it's no, they are. It's just that you know, pretty the, pretty interesting. Greenwood, yeah. Greenwood did it for like major characters, um, and and all of them in different ways to the point that yeah, death doesn't seem to be meaningful anymore. Um, but at least it was all fairly major characters. Right. Whereas uh, Salvatore seems to be taking a dive into even, you know, even El what has not been a particularly important character for two decades. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, so it seems like you're going into the to the D list here to bring people back just so you can make it feel like it was old again. Right. But but as we mentioned, I really like the new even El, so I'm kind of mm-hmm. okay with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. Can so, I talk about one thing I loved in this yes. book? Yes. We finally, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it's it's Tygo, right? Tygo Bayanres. Tiago? Tiago, sorry. I think that's how they say it in the, in the yeah, audio book. Yeah, right. that's how they say it. Tiago, we, we finally get a conclusion with that jerk. Oh, thank God. And, and my, my funny little story is I was listening to the audio book, and I, they're, they're, you know, the fight scene's going on, and it's going on, and... Uh, and I was right at the point where Driz lets, goes, lets go of his scimitars, which are stuck to the shield. And he falls back and, and Tiago kind of, you know, pulls back his shield like, oh, yeah, I've got him now. And right as Driz pulls out his bow and I stopped the recording because I was at a Starbucks and I wanted to go in and get a coffee. And I go in and I drink my coffee and I'm 
working on my laptop and I'm doing some stuff and like an hour goes by and I get back in my car and I plug it back in and it says Tiago's head explodes I was like whoa <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I totally forgot what had happened I'm like oh my god what what you know it had to like skip back yeah go back you know, go a back. couple minutes <laughs> I'm like oh but you know I was, it was you know after books of hearing this jerk you know he was like the new entrary right like I really gotta get that drizzed <laughs> yeah so so let's around talk, all these places and finally we get a good conclusion let's talk about that a little bit then because um I, my my experience with the tiago storyline was a lot less satisfying than apparently yours was mm-hmm. um because he was such a non-entity in this entire storyline <laughs> and then suddenly we're supposed to like think it's some some big climax that he and driss fights like but he like driss never saw him until that fight he was never involved in anything until that fight. Nobody mentioned him or talked about him until that fight, except for Evenel, who was, you know, manipulating him, right? So he was like a non-entity throughout the whole story. And then all of a sudden there's a big fight and Driss wins it and he's dead. And then for some reason, even though Driss like gets captured and, you know, the, the party's tortured and whatever, Evenel's like, okay, you can go. And here's all your new magical gear that you got from Tiago. <laughs> it's like, what, 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 what? So That's that was, awesome. I mean, he was... Tiago cool. was he was a loot pinata. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I don't want loot pinatas in my in my novels. Oh, you like your more serious Driz novels. So <laughs> I don't know about so, more serious, but, but <laughs> satisfying. I want to have you know. Yeah, I so know. I, yeah, so I would I would disagree. I was I was very satisfied. Like I you know he's he, Tiago was sort of a new villain for me um, because mm-hmm. I, I I leapt over like a part of the series and I sort of started with the Neverwinter books and uh, and all those guys were dead. Uh, for a while but you know there's this whole thing where tiago takes on uh you know pretends to be drizzed for a while right and he goes right. around and he it, and he i'll tell you what a, a, a poor climax is poor urtu right urtu oh, yeah. has been gone for a hundred years i know i'm bitching about a book that isn't uh this that one was, that was the one right before the computer. yeah and you know for a hundred years that poor demon has been waiting to come out to the prime plane and hunt down Driz and kick his ass and he shows up and Tiago puts him in the ground in like eight seconds yeah right? <laughs> he's like oh now I gotta wait another freaking hundred years and, and I said that at the time that we discussed that book I don't remember yeah. if that was Tracy or if that was you at that point James or, or who mm-hmm. but uh, I remember I think it was Tracy at that point uh, but I remember talking about that book and, and feeling like well Clearly, he was just taking. Here's like the 500 story threads that haven't ended yet. Let's wrap some things up because we're no, starting something like, new. Could have had a whole book about Urtu hunting down Driz. Could have, and Urtu was super cool and would have. I know, and that is lame. So, um, but since then, like Tiago, maybe I was mad because of that. <laughs> I'm more mad for Urtu than I am for Driz. Well, and maybe because you've been been binge listening to or reading yeah. these books, right? So Tiago was fresh. He I was. haven't read anything about him in a year, so he so yeah, the so fact just, that he was a yeah. non-entity in this book was not satisfying, you know. Well, yeah, so I I always kind of got the fact that he's sort of a jerk, right? And he's not nearly as good as he thinks he is, and you know he's got these fancy weapons, and those do pretty well for him. I mean, he's not nobody, but he's not Drizzt, and we all know he's not Drizzt, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and most everybody else in the story knows he's not yeah, Drizzt. Even Al knew he wasn't. Even Al knew it immediately. Like he kept she kept saying like, "Oh yeah, go down there and fight, and and the Avatar of Loth will come out." And I'm like, "Oh, I want." how she thinks this is going to turn out mm-hmm. right so i i, I kind of liked him for that like i didn't need a good he, he's not a good villain right like he's not Ar- artemis and Trary. but artemis was kind of the same way you always knew drizzt is way better than artemis you know you you always knew like yeah maybe artemis is pretty good for his style but he's not drizzt i don't know right? that i always knew that, that drizzt, i always felt that when right. i think I always, when i think back to that first fight in in the crystal in the crystal tower in Krenshinabon, 
uh, between Artemis and, and Drizzt way back in the day in the series that your wife is now reading. Well, that was, I think their, their fight was outside of uh, the, the Mithra Hall. Right with the well, bat. Yeah, I mean they've fought many times, right? But yeah, right. They fought like you know, for a hundred years, and and so I I don't know. Even back then, I was kind of like, well, I know Drizzt isn't going to lose, right? And because well, it's his book. But... Yeah, so there's always that, right? And that's sort of a little meta a meta story that goes along with this, which is you know Drizzt is like you know the best fighter that's going to exist. Except he's going to have lots of problems. Except Tiago did beat him once. Did he? Like one book ago. What happened? I don't remember. They they cut him down in the in the halls of uh, Gontelgrim, and when they were mm-hmm. retaking it, Tiago cut him down and, and Tiago, le- left him it, from, left him for for dead. Was it, and then, was it fair? No, I'm certain. I, I don't recall exactly, and, and I think it was isn't briefly a, mentioned. In isn't here. Doom Wheel there? Yeah, Doesn't she step she in. Does something right? She stabs uh, somebody. Yeah, I feel like she steps yeah. in and stabs Trist, right. and then he's like, "You took my kill." Blah blah blah. Yeah, right. yeah. kill stealer. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of remember that. That's a little hazy. Anyway, I, I felt it very satisfying, cause, mostly because I'm kind of happy to be rid of him too, right? So it's very satisfying to watch his head explode because Driz shot him in the face with an exploding bow. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's, pretty, that's pretty great. Like that I, was, I'm more that, happy to be rid of him than I am satisfied with how he Well, that's the way I am too. Like I said, I didn't like him. And, and I, I didn't like him for reasons that we talked about with Salvador and reasons that uh, we'll probably talk about here in a minute. Um, but I, but I, you know, I don't like him like I like and Trary. Um, so I am happy. I, I don't miss him at all. And I thought it was pretty satisfying. Not because I thought he was like a good, valiant enemy for Drizzt, but he's such a dick for so long. It's just great to watch his head explode. And he finally gets his, he, he gets his, you know, comeuppance. Yeah. Speaking of sudden big fights that, that were of questionable satisfaction to me, <laughs> the other big, uh, con- I guess, climactic battle fight thing that happens is uh, Drist slices Demogorgon in half. Yeah, it blows him up, right. Which was one of those super cool Salvatore moments, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he does these crazy things and, and like, jumps on top of him and between the two heads with his swords and just cuts him out. Yeah, I, I loved, and it made, you know, after the interview, it made so much more sense when you think of, like, how he starts that chapter, and he sits there looking at pictures of Demogorgon, and he's like, the hell am I going to do now? Like, how, how is this going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> like, his tentacle is as wide as Drizzt is. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, like, was the whole Demogorgon thread satisfying to you at all? No, because I don't think, does Demogorgon ever say anything? Demogorgon never says anything. He never yeah. does anything. He's never even mentioned. Like, this is the big thing that Evenel yeah. wants yeah. Driss to do, but she never mentioned that it was a problem at one point at all during the entire right. book. The only person yeah, who he, ever he, mentioned he, it was right. Gronk, who wasn't even there. He was like an earthquake to Menzo Baranzin on his way out, and he's apparently coming back. But that's it, right? He's sort of like a tornado. Yeah. But even that's not even mentioned until the end when she's like, hey, this thing is happening. Can you go kill him? Yeah, right, right. And, then uh, we've, got, and we've got this grand plan, and it's totally going to work, but we're not going to tell you about it. We're just going to hope that you figure out what to do. <laughs> yeah, my, my favorite, I think my favorite, again, I keep talking about other books, um, but my favorite Demogorgon moment is the fact that when he shows up, Gonf Bayenre, who's probably, you know, in the top three strongest wizards in Faerun, yeah. just just goes crazy he's like he just you know he soils he his, claws his own eyes out yeah right right and i love the idea that these guys that these demon princes are so awful 
that even if you're got fan ray, you're just gonna like fall to the ground and and wish you were something. <laughs> yeah, and then so that was the coolest scene with with with. Uh, and then he gets ignored for an entire book, sure. yeah. and all of a sudden at the end, it's like, oh, by the way, because we need to wrap up the storyline that we've kind of not been dealing with. Go go find Demogorgon and kill him for us. Well, that was you know again not to meta not to get into the meta here, but in the interview that. Is you know the, the the issue seemed to be wizard said hey we want you to write this book and by the way Drizzt has to fight Demogorgon yeah, yeah. And, and that's like, fine but that could have been the entire know, point except, of the book like that could have, <laughs> maybe maybe talk he about didn't really Ur- want to write about Drizzt fighting Demogorgon yeah, talk about poor Urtu come on yeah I know. <laughs> Demogorgon yeah, got like the one chapter are not getting any love man more <laughs> love for demons. Yeah, I mean, it would have been, and I feel like, uh, you know, knowing that they had asked Salvatore, you know, you got to have Drizzt fight Demogorgon because we put it in a web video. Is yeah, that's right. what that felt like? Yeah. I thought, I thought he did a good job with it. Like he took a thing that is that sort of psionic crazy spell that is an established salvatore thing that he's had in other books mm-hmm. like made an appearance i thought he did a good job for a thing that felt shoehorned in um i would have loved if at the end of this book was and i i like the end of this book i already said that but if the end of this book had been you know what drizzt and dahlia and jarlaxel and artemis and Trieri, we the drow are going to let you go but we've you know we've mind melded with you or whatever and we can kill you at any moment and you can only make your way back to the surface after you've dealt with demogorgon boom end of book whole next book they're hunting demogorgon dealing with demons yada yada yeah, right? i mean i feel like the last time we had a massive like impossible fight like this was again going back to ghost king Mm-hmm. But that felt satisfying because the whole book was, what is this crazy creature doing <laughs> and then how do we stop him? Right, yeah. right, right. This, well, this uh, was, was an after – I mean it could have been – it almost could have been an epilogue of, oh, yeah, and then Driss kills Demogorgon and they let him go. <laughs> yeah. I do actually have a, uh, a question for you guys, mm-hmm. um, which is – so and and maybe this doesn't matter, but I feel like Jeff, as a realms fan, you this probably matters to you. So, what's canon for Demogorgon? Is yeah. it Drizzt or is it the story that happens in Out of the Abyss? That's a great question. I don't. And you asked that. You asked that. Uh, I asked myself. Salvatore, and his response was, eh, "Don't worry about canon so much." Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, um, but, but what else will I do with my life? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's not even that, but. But there's an Sorry. there's an issue of you know if I'm if I'm the, the question is when I buy the Forgotten Realms campaign guide that theoretically will someday come out, which version of the ending of Rage of Demons is going to happen? The one where Driss cut him in half with the the spells of an entire city uh, charged around it, or the one where all of the demon lords were summoned into Minzo Barons and and tore it to, to shreds? You know, Good question. I guess which is more satisfying, you know. Now I, I I get that like within the novels, this is the this is the story, right? I suspect that anybody who ever references the 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 destruction and defeat of Demogorgon within the novels in any of the Forgotten Realms novels, yeah, it's going to right. be this story. Like right. I get that, and that's fine. Um, They'll probably just go hazy with it in any descriptions. Yeah, I, I imagine, but that's not yeah. particularly satisfying. Well, I, I know, but like if you're reading a source book, they, it's not like they have to have two pages about what the hell Demogorgon did. No, they don't. You know, they could just oh yeah, there's a, the Amenza Branson's a little rough after Demogorgon's thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my mm-hmm. guess is that the novels are canon, but yeah. I don't know because in the past they would they would specifically try to avoid 
contradicting themselves. Like, it would happen because they had a lot of lore. Uh, but they would try to avoid it if they could. This time, like, they clearly sat down and said, well, this is the ending for the adventure, and this is the ending for the novels, and, you know, whatever. <laughs> Which is fine if I'm playing Eberron, because <laughs> that's <laughs> what they've established, right? Is that there is no canon. Uh, it's less fine for the realms where there is a 30, 40 year tradition of canon that, <laughs> that people expect. I guess. I'm kind of on Salvador's side. Eh, just let it go. I mean, <laughs> but yes. you're not a Realms fan. My version. Right? I, am, I am a Realms fan. I, you know, I, I consider myself a Realms fan. I've got, I have two maps of the Sword Coast printed and on my wall of my house. I'm looking at one right now. I've got two different ones of the Sword Coast. That's true. I'm sorry. I think of Jeff as the ultimate Realms fan. Don't get me wrong. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm, not I, a, I, I can, I'm enough of a Realms fan that I can name a dozen not people more Realms fans than to, me. To, to, to Jeff's Drizzt. <laughs> so no. you're the maestro? No, no. <laughs> I got shot in the face with the exploding arrow. <laughs> um, yeah, but but yeah. So I consider myself a realms fan, but I've always felt like you know the canon is what happens at my table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, sure. For my games, that's fine. But I'm enjoying the realms in many products across many lines, right? So where, where is the it's the third piece which is isn't isn't demogorgon a fight in um neverwinter that's my understanding but i, I don't know well, so yeah so i think you know now you got that question too and i my, think the, one is, ah. the big issue for me is when brian james makes the next grand history of the realms update what do? Yeah. <laughs> which one is it yeah yeah <laughs> i suspect the novels but it's so a good we, question though do we want to talk about the troubling parts of these uh of this book Besides the the relatively unsatisfying climaxes, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I felt like the way that uh, so so I was I was particularly bothered by the whole uh, Gonf Bayan Ray uh, uh, mental assault on Caddy Bray, and then was humbled by the fact that I forgot that uh, rape has been a plot motivator in these books now for a few. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't been paying as much attention to it and then suddenly realized, like, wow, yeah. And my big question is, you know, does rape and sexual assault still need to be a plot motivator for books like this? Or is it time that we let that go for, you know, books about deep differences? Yeah, I mean, um, it's an issue, right? Because there's a bunch of issues with the the treatment of women. Yeah. Right? There's the... Like, I wouldn't call the Gromf uh, Caterbury thing rape. No. Um, it's certainly an assault. I, I would consider it to be... think about words. Yeah, I would consider it to be sexual assault, whereas um, in the interview you're going to hear Salvatore describes it more as a seduction, magically charged seduction or psionically charged seduction. Um, it seemed, I mean, I don't know. Pushing yeah, he, he, pushing he, he, thoughts he, into somebody's mind is more like right. you know roofing somebody than it is. Yeah, that's exactly that's that. Yeah, exactly. And that in 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 the interview, he uh, he kind of pulls the same thing like he pulled with uh, who the maestro is and says, "Well, I don't know. What do you think it was?" Well, yeah, and he's totally but, open. You know, to it's like, one thing for us to argue about what maestro is. It's something else for us deciding whether or not you know Caddyberry was assaulted or not because it, it it's even potentially worse. You know, the handling of it is even more, you know, is even more. And you know, I'm struggling with words like inappropriate because it's his book and he can do what he wants. Well, and, and yeah, I don't know that it's inappropriate, but it, 
what what larger purpose does it to, serve yeah. other than convincing right. us that Gromf is a bad guy, which we kind of already knew. You and know? That's, that's that I think is my big problem is that you know looking back at it and looking at Tiago and and you know his his you know his continual rape of of and numerous Dahlia. characters. Yeah, I mean, Dahlia. He, he outright rapes Dahlia in this book. Yeah, and uh, and with what's her name before. Um, mm-hmm. And Dahlia's you know, had a history of that, right? Yeah. And and so the question, right? And and so to me, like the idea, like okay, well, that's our motivator for you know, it shows how bad Tiago is. Well, is that a good reason? Like, are there other ways that we can make somebody look bad without hitting on these topics, which are you know incredibly sensitive topics? Yeah, as, for, a, piece of, as a piece of literature, people are getting away with things, and what is the consequence? Yeah, I think it's funny, uh, you know, because uh, Mike and I talked about this a little bit over G Chat. Uh, that's right. We're G-Chat friends, everybody. Um, and, uh, and and I do think it's an interesting thing because – and, you know, the Mike, you brought up the Dark Elf trilogy, which is sort of a lot of people's introduction to Forgotten Realms drow, right, um, as bad dudes, bad people. Uh, and there's certainly some sexual scenes in there, but I am hard-pressed to remember if there's any sexual assault. There, What there might be – uh, is female aggressors on male victims sexual assault to like show the dominance of the drow right. uh, race or, or you know the 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 matriarchy and sort of. It's been of a out- long time since I've read it, but I I want to say there was, if not sexual assault, there could have even been outright rape. Um, yeah, but but reverse roles, right? Right, and that has I feel well, like and Salvador brings that up with Wolfgar in particular. Right. right. You know, that during his time when he was being, you know, totally ripped apart by demons, that that was, you know, a continual rape that occurred. Right. Yeah. And that feels like uh, that feels like a good, um, you know, I, I hate to say good use of sexual assault, right? <laughs> but like it, as, as a literary device, it makes sense. You're like, oh, OK, I get what he's showing. I get what he's showing here. And then. Uh, you know, Dahlia's origin story, she is so affected as a character yeah, by that right, right. experience, and she has a son because of it. Like, it almost feels like, okay, this makes sense. But we already know Tiago is a bad dude. Right. Um, it's kind of like what, you know, what they're doing with Ramsay's Bolton on Game of Thrones. Spoilers. Yeah. But, like, you know, without getting too into it, they keep showing us, like, he's bad. And it's like, right. we get it. Like, he's bad dude. His <laughs> symbol right. is a flayed man. Yeah. Like, we understand the drow are evil, and I don't need, I don't need anything, uh, like, it just feels, like, gratuitous to drive well, that home. Like, and, if and you want to show me a new way they're evil, give me a new form of evil. You know, don't and give me... The, the go-to yeah, in our in our in a, I mean, you know, these are not. I mean, I, I don't want to insult. These are these are very enjoyable books, and I like them. But they're not at the level where they have to tackle every single deep subject that exists in our society. Yeah, right. Well, and if you're going to tackle it, adventure yarns. Yeah, if you're going to yeah. tackle it, don't be lazy about it. Like well, it just kind of feels yeah. like it's thrown in there for the sake of having it in right, there. Right, because it's a good way to show that a dude's you know a dude's when, a bad when it was revealed as a major part of Dahlia's storyline, like. That was a, a long buildup, and they really dealt with it, and it dug into it, and it was a big deal. When it happened to Wolfgar, like there were several books of him sort of right, dealing right. with it and the consequences of that, and understanding the deeper sort of sort of impact that it has. Um, Tiago's just raping the heck out of Dahlia, and then at the end gets killed in a completely unrelated incident by a dude. By a dude, yeah, because the guy had to come and <laughs> right. save the day, right? Yeah. 
Which, uh. you know, the whole Dahlia thing is chapping my ass, too, because she did have this, like, super deep arc. I, you know, I still, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm not, I don't know if, if he handled it correctly, because I don't, it's hard for me to identify with her as a character. But, you know. Well, now, because she, she just, used to she be a strong character. Yeah, she and now suddenly she's, yeah, right. Now suddenly she's this sort of, you know, non-talking entity that is the MacGuffin for uh, uh, Artemis and Jarlaxle and Drizzt to even go there in the first place. She's literally been objectified. She yeah, is the, she is the thing for them to go get. Right, right, and that yeah. we that up during the interview. She has too. no self agency. She has no power of her own. Yeah. Right, and you know she was. I mean, she was weird and she was twisted and she had all this kind of strange stuff going on. But then she kind of, kind of, you know, this strong character gets turned into this whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, yeah, and, and again, that that even would be okay, except it just happened off camera behind the scenes over the course of six books, and and we'd have we have no like tale of how that happened there's no development it's just now now she's that right you know right yeah i mean my my feeling you know and and i think back and and james i think the the statement i put at you was yeah i i'm pretty sure because i read it when i was whatever 15 but uh i'm pretty sure there was a scene in the dark elf trilogy where drow were having sex with glabrazos right but but at least it was consensual (laughs) yeah and that isn't that an incredibly impactful and original yeah. way to show like these dudes are evil <laughs> yeah right and it's, like i remember it stuck with me for you know 20 25 years yeah but, uh yeah so but so I, I just feel like like you know our the way we're handling literature these days and the, the the way things have changed and the way our views are changing today you know the, the the question that i that i pose is is there ever a good reason to use rape as a plot motivator anymore in in these kinds of in this kind of fiction I'm not sure that I'm willing to say like it's it's inappropriate to do it. I just want it to be done with the level of seriousness and depth that is necessary. And I kind of want there to be like there needs to be a larger moral, a larger lesson here that this is not okay. And the lesson I got from this book is, you know, it's just a thing that happens. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I mean, to to me it's like you know, particularly for a bunch of, you know, white guys like us. Right. It's, it's, you know, it like I, I don't want to, I don't want to touch the topic because I know nothing about it. Right. You know, mm-hmm. not at all. And and it's it's way easier to just come up with another way to handle a situation, you know, right. than it is to try to fall back to that one just to say, wow, this guy's really bad. Yeah. You know, I've never used it. I mean, I'm not putting myself on some kind of high horse here, but like I, I would never use it as a plot motivator in my D and D games. Yeah. And and to me, I always look at these novels as sort of like me playing D and D when I can't play D and D. Hmm. So, uh, so that bothered me, and and yeah, the treatment of Dahlia, and the other thing, and, and it's another one where just like my own views are changing. Because probably when I was a fifteen-year-old boy, I would be more than happy with the fact that Evenel is walking around naked the whole time, and there's detailed descriptions of the color of her pubic hair. Now I'm like, what the hell are we talking about? <laughs> Why is this important? They can't just talk about the fact that that people see her in different images, but she has to walk around naked with people painting her all the time. You know. What's that about? Well, I don't, and I didn't. I thought the painting thing was actually kind of a cool way of of slowly revealing and 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 whatever. Uh, I don't know that I needed a a detailed description of the color of her pubic hair, but um, yeah, it's, it, it just yeah. Again, it felt gratuitous to me, and and I thought like, well, you know, again, you don't want to you don't want to kind of shape a novel and say, oh, this is these are the only things that I want to have in my novel. Right. These are the only things I don't. But I thought to myself, like, did I need it? And the answer is not really. You know, so and not saying it shouldn't ever be in there, or that you know the Senate should pass some new law about it. Yeah, and I don't know that I. I, I, I could say know. whether I like something or not. Yeah, and I don't know that that bothered me as much. 
Uh, it certainly didn't bother me as much as like the stuff that went on with Cadbury and and Dahlia, yeah. and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess yeah. that part. I mean, that part. It didn't bother me. It, you know. He, but here's what I do know: is that this is the book that made it very clear to me. Oh, it's going to be a long time before I hand these books off to my son. <laughs> yeah, I have a, I have a, a good friend of mine. His daughter is reading these, and she's I think you know I think she started reading them before she was ten, mm. and and she got really far, and and he's like, oh yeah, no, she's like you know she's reading the Thousand Orcs series. I'm like, she got you had your like nine year old read about Wolfgar getting raped by Succubi, and he's like, oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I feel like, it's like that oh, she, is she probably had no idea whether she was reading. I, I also feel like his descriptions of those things have gotten more uh, graphic. You know, I feel like as he has, uh, as he's matured in his own writing career, um, you know, like, like he, even, even just his consensual sex scenes were very much like, you know, like a PG 13 movie, they would kiss and fall down on the bed and then you'd like zoom in on the window and there would be a flutter (laughs) and then we're in the next chapter. And now, you know, we get a little more, uh, into the action. We're not in full on romance novel yeah, 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 yeah. or anything like that. And I feel like it's the same way with the sexual violence. Like with Wolfgar, you know, it's more of uh, about the psychological torture he's right. going through. And it's sort of just implied that this is what's happening with the succubi. Whereas like, you know, they talk about, they get much more graphic. Yeah, we had uh, we, we heard about Gonf Van Ray's erection. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Which was, and yeah. Yeah, it was the least just... interesting thing about Gonfanray, if you ask me. <laughs> like, I, I have lots of things I want to learn about Gonfanray. That is not one of them. Yeah. And, you know, Mike, I uh, just to, to answer your question, like I'm a little with Jeff. I think if, if a device can be used in a meaningful way like that to me is like, OK, this is this is cool and, and we're going to understand. But like the whole thing with Caddy Bree for me, it was like. What, what what it just felt like an excuse to write around write about Gromp's erection, you know? Like it didn't really it didn't feel like it went anywhere other than like right. Caddy Bree's pretty hot and I bet I could mind meld with her. Like that's all it sort of felt like and it it would be cool if there was some sort of uh, lasting, you know, like Gromp had a greater plan, or you know, it was for the greater good, or or there was something there yeah, plot wise other than me, just right. That. Yeah, I mean, to me, the the whole kind of idea that Drizzt is gone, uh, Caddy Bray's life has completely changed over these years. She spent, you know, whatever, almost twenty years apart from Drizzt, growing up again. She's right. become this whole new thing. She's is she still the the the, the chosen in Mistra? Not Mistress, she was never Not Mistress. Mistra, Maliki. Whoever. Maliki, sorry. I can't keep, I don't know anything about Forgotten Realms. So, they, you know, they, <laughs> she had this whole kind of storyline. So the idea of like, well, yeah, I love Driz, but Driz also had his own life. He was with Dahlia, and now she's talking to her friend about, you know, the fact that, look, you can love somebody and still sleep with other people. The idea that she might start to feel an attraction for Gromf, is, is, or Gromf, is not Gromf or Gromf. Gromf, with an R. Gromf. With an R. Uh, the idea that she might feel attraction for him is is not unsettling. It is a little unsettling, but it's not, you know, like that's kind of an interesting sort of thing going on. But then there's the whole like, uh, you know, the psionic attack, right? That he's using what he learned from from Obadra to, you know, inject you know images into her head, and then how much imagery did he push, and how much did she add herself, and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, I don't know, you know that. It could have been really interesting until it got to that part, and then, you know, now I don't know why we're doing it. Great. 
yeah, exactly. And like, again, would have been more like, how cool would it have been if we had gotten to that point and Gromf was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I yeah. never put those right. images in your head. It, like, that would have changed everything and it would have been like, whoa, yeah. oh my God, you know? I mean, I totally expected like when Caddy Bree walks into his thing and he's leaning back on the bed with his erection and that it wasn't going to be her. It was going to be like a polymorph of, uh, what's her name? Penelope. Penelope. <laughs> She's like, I, I would always like to have sex with an archmage. Yeah. But it, that didn't turn out to That be didn't true. turn out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so there's so I think the book's got all kinds of interesting things going on. It's got all kinds of uh, issues that I think we're going to have to continue to deal with. I know that uh, Salvatore in the in the interview that you're going to hear momentarily references that he feels like he has a little more permission to get more gratuitous and those kinds of things because other things in culture are moving that direction. And he points at things like Game of Thrones as an example of that. Right, which also um, gets a ton of criticism about the same well, stuff. Sure, yeah, absolutely, and and I'll tell you. Um, and that's fine, but that's not what I've traditionally gone to a Salvatore novel for. Right. Uh, and so if, if it's going to move into that genre, then, then that's a whole different evaluation of, of who the audience is compared right. to who it used to be. Um, right. So, so I'll, I'll be interested to see where it goes. Now it's time to head over and talk to the author, Robert A. Salvatore. Take it away, Jeff. And now I am back with New York Times bestselling author R.A. Salvatore to talk about his latest Forgotten Realms novel, Maestro. Bob, welcome back to the show. Good to be back, Jeff. Good to be back. It is our, what, our regular every six-month discussion? Yeah. Yeah, it's become pretty regular, but it's always interesting, so I'm glad to be back. Well, good. We've got some questions for you dealing with Maestro. It it is a book that uh, takes a a different turn than what we have necessarily seen in the past. But to start off with, uh, just generally speaking, as concrete or or esoteric as you want to be, what is Maestro about? It's about, well, a lot of it deals with tying up things that have happened over the course of the last several books, uh, particularly Archmage, where... Um, there's a really bad thing going on in the Underdark and, and it involves someone that needs to be helped. And of course, Dritz sticks his nose into it and with not great results in some ways. It's and also feel, a book. Feel um, free to be spoilery because we give spoilery. Yeah, we're getting, to the we're getting all so. spoilery. Yeah. Oh, we're getting all spoilery. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Dritz is going down there to rescue Dahlia. There happens to be a demon plague basically going on down there, and the phase rest has been weakened to the point where the abyssal insanity is kind of leaking through. And at the same time Dritz is doing that, Caddy Bree is trying to rebuild the host tower using the primordial and Gauntelgrim with the help of, oh boy, quite some the, of the, the Shadowvar, uh, Gromf Banray, the Harples, a Cloud Giantess. Um, a really eclectic crew of trouble. The dragons, the dragon sisters, the, of course. Yep. The, the hive mind of the mind flayers, right? Eventually, I mean, via Camurel, <laughs> right? Yep. And Very good. so it's um, it's basically one of the most chaotic books I think I've ever written. Hmm. Um, there's so much going on in so many different directions. And I don't think very much of it is predictable. At least I had no idea what was going to happen most nope. of the way through it. Um, and I really loved it. And, and I, I loved it 
even more when I finished writing the sequel, Hero, which is coming out in October. Because it, I don't think I've ever been more satisfied with something I've written. It's interesting. So, so generally speaking, that's what the book's about. And and now you got us uh, hooked on and, and ready to listen to the next one or read the next one when it comes out. Uh, as a as an overall sort of uh, look at the at Maestro, though, what were the goals of this book? What was the what was the things you were trying to do or accomplish as you as you wrote it? I think the primary thing is you know I've got these characters that have been around for a long time, and some really weird things went down in the last few books. Um, rebirth with full consciousness for some, uh, you know, Dritz going off the path, trying to find his way back to the path, Artemis and Trary trying to make sense of a world and being able to look himself in the mirror for the first time and, and not be repulsed by what he sees. <laughs> um, the entire meltdown of uh, Menzo Baranzan due to Gromf's daughter, a rising power who is really really bad or really really maybe not bad i had to explore that intently in this book uh, but what i really wanted to accomplish more than anything else was to redefine the characters the companions of the hall and what they stand for and who they are and let them let them confront some of their own inner demons As and, well especially two of them right because yeah especially of the companions you only really see two yeah, you don't, well, those are the two this book focused on. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's really where I'm going with this whole, ser- whole series. That's one of the reasons I called it Homecoming, right, is because you've got all these, these people that went through this amazingly traumatic, ridiculously absurd <laughs> transformation, and they're all trying to come to terms with it. And that's going to take a little soul searching. And so I had to do some soul searching in the voice of each of the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And... and you know, it kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things, which is the whole point of my writing. I write for me. I write because it's my journey. You know, I, we've said this before, right? Um, I saw the opportunity to really get into the minds of characters who are mature now. Even in their new bodies, they are mature. They are um, confronting the world they've created, essentially, and trying to see, okay, is this it? Is there more? Can we save it? Do we want to save it? Um, there was quite a journey. And, and the title is Maestro, and the the at least at the at a surface level, the Maestro seems to be Jarlaxle. He's on the cover, and I think at one point he's even referenced as um, the Maestro, sort of conducting the whole thing. That said, is he really the Maestro? I think I'll let the readers answer that more than I will. In my mind, no. At this point, no. <laughs> I can name at least two other maestros. Maybe I'll three. I'll bet you can name three other maestros yeah. off the top of your head real quick, Caddy Bree, Gromp, and Yvonne L. Yeah, even um, L always felt like the maestro in this book to me. Well, how about Lolf, who set the whole thing up well, two yeah. books ago, right? Yeah, she's a victim. You'll see. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, Jarl Axel certainly came into the book as the maestro and you know, that's his whole shtick, right? That's how he survives. That's the way he gains power. That knowledge is power. He pulls the strings because he knows more than everybody else. But even Jal Axel's a little over his head with this one, just like Gromf was when he accidentally, <laughs> because of Camuriel and Loth, 
um, summon Demogorgon to the city. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things I wanted to accomplish in this series, especially at the midpoint in this series, was showing that as big and bad as the characters think they are, they can get over their heads. And certainly Gromf got over his head in the last book. Dritz got over his head in this book. Caddy Bree might be over her head in this book. Um, and Jarl Axel is over his head in this book. Yeah, it was it was kind of funny. I'm at the end of uh, at the end of Archmage when when Gromf summons uh, Demogorgon, and he basically just goes crazy, right? He just kind of falls over and you know stumbles through a portal, you know, saying, "I'm sorry, sorry about what I did." Well, and, you know, they that was part of the um, the meta story that Wizards of the Coast was putting right. together. Yeah, and, and so I, they I wanted like. They really see, wanted me to get into that, and they said, "Okay, you can have Demogorgon." I'm like, thanks, all right? That. And I gotta and, say, like, after thinking of a dude like Gromf Ban Ray falling falling apart, seeing him, I was kind of well, disappointed at the stat block in the in Out of the Abyss. Oh, I don't pay attention to that. Yeah, <laughs> but um, with me, the best way to show how badass Demogorgon really is is the expression on Gromp's face. Yeah, exactly. Because you know Gromp is a badass. Right. You know, he'll take on anybody and win. Right, right. Um, and he even if he's at- like that, then the readers should immediately know, uh-oh. Yep. Even the readers who, like, don't play D&D and maybe don't read the Monster Manual mm-hmm. don't understand what Demogorgon really is. Mm-hmm. But I've always tried to do that. It's one of the reasons why I've never been comfortable with the gods in the realms, because if they're gods, then it's Deus Ex Machina, period. Yeah, right. And, you know, I mean, I understand that I don't really treat them as gods. I treat them as kind of these these greater beings that are mortal after all. But to my way of thinking, um, when you have to show them, showing the effect that they have on someone like Gromph kind of puts it in its perspective of what the, we're really talking about here. Because I think gamers sometimes lose that perspective, right? As soon mm-hmm. as you get to a high enough level in the D&D campaign or whatever, you go after the gods. Yeah, or you right. used, especially <laughs> in, in uh, the old basic campaigns, right? Mm-hmm. The epic level characters are fighting gods. Yeah, they have stats for a reason. Exactly. They have <laughs> stats for a reason. If you look at the Fiend Folio, with, uh, you know, they, they give stats to all these supermen and superheroes and the gods and demon gods and all the rest of it. And the, the problem with that is if that's true, then how are they really gods? Mm-hmm. And the, if, we, if you go by the kind of monotheist view of the world of God, right? You can't beat them. <laughs> um, but in D&D, you can. So I, I really wanted to show just how above Gromph Demogorgon was. No, yeah. Gromph's not going to go into a throwdown drag-out fight with Demogorgon because he will be obliterated in short order. So speaking, speaking of that, um, at the end of the book, how many D6 damage did Driz do to uh, Demogorgon? All of them. <laughs> All of the D6s. That, that seemed about right. When he's absorbing meteor swarms, you're like, wow, that's a lot of D6s. But you know what I did? You know what I did in that? Because, see, that, that was the one edict. Every now and then, wizards will put an edict on me. <laughs> you have to do this in the book. And mm. it's usually just something that I can put into the story and not really worry about. And I get to write the book I want to write anyway, so I don't argue. But they came back to me and they said, we want Driss to fight Demogorgon. Mm-hmm. And I went, <laughs> how's that going to work? How's that going to work? 
He's like, and I read he's the like first edition once, Manuel, because I'm an old gamer and I always go back to first edition. And I went, boy, that's going to be rough. But then they showed me what Demogorgon really was in fifth edition, fourth and fifth, where he's 30 feet tall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and they say Driz has to fight Demogorgon. And I'm like, no. <laughs> it can't happen. I mean, it that could have been an happen. entire book it makes on its no own. Sense. What's he going to give him a hangnail? It doesn't. This, <laughs> how? And so, if you look at how I approached that scene when Dritz yeah. got sent out by Yvonne Hell to confront him in the cavern, he draws his scimitars. He sees Demogorgon. And he's like, oh crap. And he puts the scimitars away and runs for his life because he can't fight Demogorgon. <laughs> so, I had to come up with a way to make it plausible that Dritz could win. Mm-hmm. Because Dritz can't win, but Dritz, the entire city of Menzel Berenzan, with the help from a hive mind, maybe can. Right. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of, of Dritz and, and the, the craziness that he goes through, um, let's talk about Dritz's craziness. Um, there's an early indication that, that this madness sort of comes over Dritz and Artemis, especially, uh, as they start bickering with each other as they get further into the Underdark. And then Drist really, like, completely folds yes. to, to this madness for various yes. reasons. There's other psionic intrusions, and there's the symbol of despair that he apparently failed to save against and whatever. Uh, but he just completely fell apart, whereas Artemis and Jarlaxle and the entire city of Drow and everybody else seems to be getting along okay. What, what made Drist so susceptible to, to this craziness? A couple of different things. First, the the effects of the abyssal insanity plague are random. They're chaotic. They this is the way as it was explained to me that you know if a hundred people walked by the phase rest close enough, you know a few would get it, a few wouldn't, and they'd get it to different varying degrees. What I wanted to show there is that. At the time it happened, Artemis, who is on solid footing, finally, he knows who he is, he knows what he wants, he's figured it out, was able to only, just a little bit of nagging doubt allowed him to succumb to it. Jarlaxle is Jarlaxle. He's got his eye patch, he's got a thousand years of knowledge stored up there. There's and no one with more confidence in the realms than Jarlaxle. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, exactly. And, and even if he began to doubt himself, his whole life is, is, is a con. I mean, he's Donald Trump, for Christ's sakes. Um, <laughs> Whoa! You just ruined this character for me. Yeah, only with better hair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because he has no hair, yeah. right? And yeah, you're right. I just ruined He's dying in the next book. That's that. Yeah, that, I don't care. Whatever. <laughs> no, um, but Jarlaxle be- is the ultimate con, right? And when things go awry, he pretends they're not awry and makes them and works it to his advantage anyway. That's how he that's how he survives. Dritz at this point has gone through what can only be described as a dream, right? He gets clobbered by Dahlia, crawls up to the top of Kelvin's can and dies almost. And is rescued by all the people he lost over the previous hundred years. Or, I mean, and he's remembering what Wolfgar went through when he was in the abyss. When Wolfgar was in the abyss, Urtu 
would hit him with illusion after illusion to make him think he was living a life with Cadbury, and they had kids and everything was wonderful. And then Ertu would dispel the illusion and eat the kids in front of him. Right. This was the torment that broke Wolfgar. Dritz knows Loth is out to get him. He has witnessed the fight between Myliki and Loth in the form of their proxies, Dahlia and Caddy Bree. He, it makes sense to him that it's all a big ruse, that he has been pushed into the realm of unreality, if you will. And he lost. And he descended into madness. And in the next book, I can give this one little bit of the next book away for you. There's a scene where Jalaxel is is trying to help Dritz because they know he's a lost soul. And it's pointed out to him that he's disappointed in Dritz because Dritz should just be able to to suck man up. He should man up and get over it. But what Jarlaxle doesn't understand is that when you've got a true psychotic break, a true mental illness, the problem is you can't do that. That's why it's a a disease. It's like having a broken leg or having your arm cut off. It is something that is physiological impairment. And so one of the things I wanted to go to at that point goes along with a lot of the discussions that we've been going through in our world. I don't try to do one-to-one analogy, analogies or metaphors or anything like this, but I wanted, to go, I wanted to address a lot of the discussions that have come up recently where people have bravely stood up and said that they've been battling depression. And it was just a statement I wanted to make about it, that... No, you, you can't, because the first instinct, even for me, right, I'm an old school Italian kid that grew up, you know, boys don't cry and don't give me this baloney that you're depressed, suck it up and get on with your life attitude. <laughs> and so the revelations about people I love, you know, from people I know dearly, have known as friends for all my life, the revelations I've heard from them, from other people who have had the courage to stand up publicly, other public figures who has stood up and said that I was depressed. And you look at the opioid crisis that's going on, and you look at the pain that so many people are going through. Dritz isn't immune to that stuff either. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why, I, first of all, after you fight Demogorgon, what's left? You know, the, I, I'm not going to find bigger, badder monster in the next <laughs> <laughs> But to me, the bigger, badder monster for anyone is what's in their own head mm-hmm. or can be. You know, when I wrote the Demon Wars series, one of the conceits of that series or one of the basic concepts of that series mm-hmm. was the question, are the demons real or are they the darkness that resides in the hearts of men manifested? Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of doing the same thing with this. And if that made no sense, blame the maker's mark. <laughs> So, so kind of getting into, um, you know, a- addressing different topics in the book, one of the scenes that, that uh, caught my interest and, and seemed, 
and I don't want to say exactly out of place, but it seemed different than things I'd read in, in previous ones, is the conversation that Penelope Harple and Ketty Bree have about monogamy versus polyamory. Yeah. Uh, what, where, did that, where did that scene come from? What, what, was your, what was your thought behind that? Well, I mean, Penelope's been like that from the very beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Penelope, when she meets Wolfgar, right? Um, she's married, but they don't care, and her husband doesn't care, and neither does she, because that's just not how they live their life. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, things, what, what, what thoughts are real in the lives of actual people? Um, the, the whole question of tradition religion, morality, sexuality is very, I think, important in current discourse. And there are lots of different viewpoints and I write to answer questions to myself. And when I have characters that have different viewpoints than I do, whether it's religious or, in Penelope's case, polyamorous, maybe I write so that I can try to figure out someone else's viewpoint on something to understand them and the world around me a little better. Mm-hmm. Um, she has an open marriage. We've got a candidate for president who's on his third marriage is tied to a guy who basically ran a brothel on a private island. We've got another candidate who stood by her husband when he repeatedly broke his vows or cheated on her, however you want to put it. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. you've got another candidate who had a child out of wedlock. You've got an American family and and a human family that looks a lot different from the traditions of even a hundred years ago. And it's all kind of a facade anyway. I remember when I was in college reading um, a study that was amazed to find out that something like 40% of Puritan babies were born two months early. How'd that happen? (laughs) Um, So, you know, look, I think that George Martin and Diana Gabaldon And the readers have given us a little bit of a permission in this genre to explore the deeper questions of the world around us in areas that we normally wouldn't go. And Wizards of the Coast didn't say no. The old TSR would have sent a black helicopter to blow up my house. (laughs) Um, So I went with it because Mm -hmm. it was interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And and speaking of those kind of subjects, uh, one of the things I'm sure you were expecting to hear from us um, is the situation between Gromf and Caterbury. He's a dirtbag, isn't he? Yeah, so, I mean, I think... He became a lot dirtier. But most generously, we could probably call this sexual abuse. Um, uh, maybe, but go ahead. Well, and so I, I guess we're just kind of curious, what were your thoughts on... on what did Gromf injecting- really do to her? Well, he 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 forced uh, thoughts into her head. Did he? 
Seem that's, to. What, that's what they both said they, he did. <laughs> um, Gromp didn't say it went anywhere near as far as Caddy Bree said it went, though. That, that moves into an interesting, uh, problematic hair to split there, too, though. Guy takes his shirt off at the beach. He's got this rockin' six-pack. Walks by some girls. Right? Okay. Isn't that what Gromf did? If what Gromf said was true? I don't think so. I mean, he's sitting there naked on his bed <laughs> when she well, walks yeah, in. That, that's a little bit further than that. Uh, reason, right? Walking around without a shirt, working out. Yeah, but that was, that was when she came to his room because he thought she had fallen for the temptation. What but, really happened there, in my mind, is that Gromf did it was sexual abuse. Absolutely. What Gromf did, mm-hmm. he lied about what he said he did. And what Gromf did is he put psionic intrusions into her brain to tempt her unfairly. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. He's a dirtbag. And, and what were his consequences for doing that? His consequences for doing this were the realization that this person was a lot stronger and tougher than he thought. He did not suffer any real consequences beyond his sudden realization that he better be careful messing with her. Um, no, he didn't. The world and, isn't always fair. And, and similarly, um, Dahlia, as I recall early in the book, just outright gets raped by Tiago. Another dirtbag. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and Dahlia... Look, I want to sugarcoat this. A lot of people mm-hmm. read these books and they forget the reason why the drow are considered evil. Their culture is wicked. It's vicious. It's violent. They do things like that. Um, if you watch the show Vikings, they do things like that. Yeah, even Vikings oh. keeps it pretty tame. People are <laughs> off. To go, back to, to go back to the whole point of this, though, um, part of what happened with Caddy Bree and Grump was Caddy Bree coming to terms with what she thought were honest feelings. And maybe there were some. Maybe there was some temptation, even though it was illicitly gained. But in the end, she won. Mm-hmm. She regained her. She's not a victim. She doesn't think of herself as a victim. She took control of that situation. She took control of him. Of him. And she's a tough character. So in, in you know, the, 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 the topic of, of, you know, using rape in fiction has been coming up a lot recently. Um, you know, how do, how do you feel about that sort of being a, a, a plot motivator in a book like this? It's not a plot motivator in this book. It's a side thing that happened. Um, that's a little different. And it wasn't with Dahlia. I mean, Dahlia got raped a hundred different ways by the drow in the time she was there. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, they're dirtbags. Um, Tiago got his comeuppance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although, although not. Yeah, he got his comeuppance from another another guy yeah. in, in an unrelated <laughs> okay. way. Yeah, address that too, because the way the way I've heard this before is, you know, how why is a guy writing about what what a woman went through in this? Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't. I don't judge Diana Gabaldon when Jamie is raped by Blackjack in the cell in Outland. 
Outlander. Um, the author can only give the perspective the author has. And in this scene, I've, I've got these characters who I am intimately familiar with. I think I know who they are, and I think I know how they would react to different things. I put them in stress all the time, whether it's at the tip of a spear or in a chair, in Caddy Bree's case, being held by Artemis and Trary, who dragged her across the realms in the, one of the earlier books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in Dahlia's case, she's done a lot of bad things, too. She pretty much killed Dritz in the previous book. In my books, I'm an equal opportunity torturer. <laughs> and How many men have gotten raped in your books? <laughs> um... You know, when you when you look at what happened to Wolfgar, mm-hmm. he was raped yeah. in the abyss. All right. All right, yeah, I give you that. And 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 as I recall, Drizzt early on in in one of the original um, Underdark books. No, no, I, no. I want let's stop. I mean, Wolfgar was literally raped in one of my books. Mm-hmm. Repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's my answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> Alright. So along those lines, uh, Dahlia, through uh, you know all of the the time that she's been in the Underdark and the the trauma that she suffered uh, in various ways, um, has turned her in this book into she's almost the MacGuffin, right? She's the damsel in distress. Are we yes. going to see a return to a, a strong Dahlia that we got used to in the previous incarnations? Oh, if I get back. To Dahlia, I won't tell you whether I am or not. If I get back to Dahlia, um, I can promise you that once her brain is unwound from the mess up that Methyl put upon her, the only lasting scar she'll suffer from this is anger and and the desire to go and hurt people back. Mm. She's tough as nails. I say, is this any worse than what she went through early early in her life? Um, probably similar. Um, but I think this was probably worse because she was so completely incapacitated mm. throughout it all. But I, you know, if you're going to call her a damsel in distress, I want to point something out to you on this. Dahlia was captured by the drow, being tortured horribly, and Dritzden, Trary, and Jarlaxle went down to rescue her. And I'm not saying you're accusing me of anything, but you say, is she the damsel in distress now? In Starless Night, which I wrote in 1993, Dritz was captured by the drow and being held helpless and being tortured. And Caddy Bree went down mm-hmm. to rescue mm-hmm. him. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And with the help of Entreri and Jarlaxle, rescued <laughs> him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did Dritz stay a damsel in distress? No. But the books okay. are about him, so I know he's going to get the spotlight later on, <laughs> <laughs> and he's going to get the development. Well, I, just to know Dolly is, I just want to know My if Dolly is going to get that. My characters go through hell and bounce back. That's why they're okay. heroes, even the ones who have a little bit of gray in them, like Dahlia. Okay. Mm. So in the larger scheme of that development, going back to the main character of Driss, uh, what is what does this book accomplish in terms of his development as a character and as a person? I can't explain that fully without giving away hero. Okay. Um, but let's just say that Dritzt, in confronting his greatest fear, and that all of this is a big lie, by loath, to break him, in realizing the bottom, 
Drizzt may either fail, walk around wondering for the rest of his days, or finally find some peace. Hmm. So, so changing topics and, and, you know, kind of hitting on something that I think is a, a, a pretty, a pretty serious issue. And I know a lot of people that are, are really interested in it. Um, what do you think about the disgraceful horrors that Chris Perkins is doing with Drizzt on the Acquisitions <laughs> Incorporated game? Yeah, I really don't have any comment on that. No comment. <laughs> I didn't see it. I you didn't, didn't see, see it? Game. No, oh I my. didn't see it. I was oh a little my. ticked. Oh, okay. <laughs> so they There's did, not, so they did not consult you they first. They called me and said that. It kind of burns my chaps, all right, that Patrick Rothfuss over the last two years has had more airtime with my character than I have, okay? <laughs> There's a little bit of unfairness there, especially when it's an hour from my house and I could have been there <laughs> with bells on. And how great would that have been if if all uh, that went down and then you came in from backstage or whatever, you know? Maybe, maybe. Well, I remember, I remember last year, I watched the one last year where Scott was pushing everyone to kill Dritz, right? Remember that? <laughs> He's, and he was just, he was just having a grand old time. We got to kill him. We got to kill him. How cool would it have been if I had just walked on the stage behind him without him saying it? Tapped <laughs> him on the shoulder and said, dude, we need to talk. <laughs> well, if Chris Perkins is listening to this, they need to yeah, consider it next time. Right. Well, Chris uh, knows that I'm coming up to Wizards probably within a month or so, and he's the one who has to like take me out to lunch every day. Yeah. <laughs> so Fair there may good. be consequences. Mm. All right. And, and no, next... it's not canon. So there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm not sure what is canon anymore because the adventures and the novels contradict each other with how this whole uh, abyssal intrusion. So, Canon is what I run at my. Is what table. I decide to do at my table, yeah. How do they contradict themselves? I'm not sure what other novel you're referring to. No, not the novel. The the Out of the Abyss uh, adventure has a very specific way that the that Demogorgon eats it, which is not Driss cutting him in half. Oh, oh, oh! Well, because that's a game that the characters have to participate in. There's different needs for the audience, right? You can't. I. You really can't look at a computer game the same way as a novel because. No, the the, you know, the, the tabletop the, adventure. Yeah, tabletop adventure. I mean, it, well, a tabletop game either. It's it's you can't do it the same way because if you do this, if you did it in the, on the tabletop game the way I did it, then all it is is the DM telling the characters how they won. Right. Well, and, and there were whole adventures in the second edition days that did that. Right. The Avatar trilogy adventures were you just following around the main characters. Yeah, I, it's not. They 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 serve different purposes. I was thinking of the Neverwinter game when I said the computer game because yeah, yeah. they did the same thing, right? They did the same thing with Gauntlegrim. Right. They, mm -hmm. It's not the way it was in the book. First of all, the timeline's all messed up from what it was in the book, but it's okay because if you if you do it and you have fun, maybe you can find a different perspective on the same thing. Right. The way Phil Athens used to um, put this to me was. He thought of all the authors writing about their campaigns. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that was how he, as the kind of coordinator of the Forgotten Realms book line at that time, reconciled how things work differently in this book than they did in this book. Because to him, the authors were like writing their own campaigns. 
And of course, no D&D campaign looks like another one. Mm-hmm. If you have different DMs and different groups playing, and you know that you're mm-hmm. you're an old school gamer, you know that. <laughs> and that's the way I've always approached my writing since then. Is that this is what makes sense to me in the context of the environment I've created in the books. Mm-hmm. Now there are times when you you really have to kind of knuckle under. Um. When I was writing the book, I had no idea what they were doing on the tabletop game. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see going forward where, and this is obviously a wizards thing, right? They have to decide what the what what is continuity, what's in the canon, what's not. Uh, clearly, the novels have their canon, and the the tabletop game can have its separate canon and whatever. But eventually, they're going to publish a campaign guide that kind of picks which one happened, right? Or maybe they'll just not address it, just say you know, and then it ended. Well, how does it on. work in the game? In the tabletop yeah, game, it's like a great big fight between yeah, the demon. Princes, it's a big battle. They, the The players enact some sort of ritual that summons all of the demon lords into one place, uh, preferably Minzo Baranzan, and then it's, it's a big, big mosh It's pit. a big battle royale. Yeah. Oh, and the how party does the goes in and clean. They go how in and clean up. Insanity work. How does insanity work? Yeah. Uh, you're exposed to it over time. Mike has more experience with it than I do, but you're exposed to it over time, and the more times you're exposed to it, the longer lasting it it, it goes. Yeah, although I ended up so because because I was kind of so I I, I just sort of loved the idea of of a guy like Gromf Bayanray going going you know going loopy when he saw Demogorgon that I kind of did the same thing to the party every time they saw not only a demon prince but anything that had like a direct relation to a demon prince with mm. you know straight they have the insanity rules madness rules in the dungeon master's guide and I just made the DC for it really hard so anybody that looked at a demon prince in fact I think when they saw Demogorgon almost exactly the same thing happened that everybody except like one of the PCs was basically completely incapacitated Right. And then that one PC had to figure out how to drag the other ones away <laughs> while while Demogorgon was wrecking a Qtoa village. Ah. So uh, I guess last thing to, before we let you go, we mentioned that the next book coming out in October is Hero, yep. uh, just just in time for my birthday. Uh, so where does this story take Driss? Where, where are we going to see him now? <laughs> what can we look forward well, to? Well, I did put on my Facebook page that a fight between Dritz and Grandmaster Kane was incredibly fun to write. Hmm. Good. Does that mean we get to, to meet uh, meet up with Afrofrenfrayer again? I think you could probably count on it. Excellent. Because, I love that character. Because I loved the character and I yeah, hated, the, I hated the name for like three books and then I finally figured out how to say it. So now I'm good with it. <laughs> so. Yeah, once you, once it. you, I don't know you how you pulled that it, off. You can't unget it. It's one of those things. Here's a question though. You spent a couple of questions in here asking me about Dahlia mm-hmm. as the damsel in distress, the sexual issues with Caddy Bree and Gromph and Penelope. Mm-hmm. How come you never asked me about a fat from fat? Because he wasn't in the book. Yeah, he's not in it. <laughs> On the other books, we talked about it when when uh, when he when we first discovered that he uh, was homosexual. We we discussed that. Oh, we did. You're right. Okay, mm-hmm. you got me there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> yes, we did. Yeah, my, my I wasn't. I wasn't here. Yeah, Mike yeah. wasn't there. But yeah, we, you <laughs> and I way, talked is about Penelope it. Penelope really any different than Jal Axel, or did this just jar people more because it was a woman? Oh, I I don't. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that that necessarily jars people. I I found the conversation to be. 
to be pretty interesting. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't find and that I just, hard. I thought it was a, a neat sort of commentary, exactly like you said. Right, and I think, and I think commentary it, on the situation was, that we're talking about in real life these days. And it was very explicit. It was very uh, let's let's specifically have this conversation about sex, as opposed to things just sort of happening, you know, off camera or whatever. Um, yeah, but it, it was it was in was some ways a very grown up conversation. <laughs> I don't think it was anything worse than you see on Grey's Anatomy. No, I would say it was it was direct, right? Right. No, it, was, it was direct. It was a very it clear was. conversation about the issue rather than sort of being hinted at or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. No. I mean, and I, I, and I like the Darl fact Axel, who's trisexual. Yeah. He right. Try anything. Like dragons. Yeah. Dragons. Um, By the way, one of my favorite lines in any book ever is when Tiago was boasting to Grump that he had oh, ridden a dragon. Yeah. Right. And Grump <laughs> said, "I've eaten a dragon." Jarl <laughs> Axel in the corner said, "I've slept with a dragon." Yeah, twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, I, I don't know why I went there. I I think that I've been watching Vikings. I've been watching Outlander. I am absolutely in love with both shows. They pull no punches. They're honest. Mm -hmm. They go places that. I hadn't gone in these books, but I had in Demon Wars. Hmm. I mean, I had, you know, the, the whole story of, of uh, Pony and Conrad in Demon Wars was pretty brutal. Um, the whole trauma that both she and Elbrian suffered at the beginning of the book, sharing their first innocent kid kiss, right, was brutal. Um And you know, I, wizards didn't say no. There you go. And and now, uh, thanks to the humble bundle that they recently had with the Demon Wars books, I'll get to to find out what all that's about too. Well, the Demon Wars books you're going to see in the humble bundle are, are abridged, but they're really good. Okay. Because um, graphic audio does a really good reenactment of them. They call it a movie in your mind, and they do it really well. Mm -hmm. Um. I. I don't want to announce anything about audiobooks, but you might have another option on Demon Wars if you don't like abridged um, <laughs> very soon. And I'll also say that, um, you know, I am working on a Demon Wars book now. Mm -hmm. It's very different. Um, I fell in love with two characters, absolutely fell in love with two characters and knew I had to write about them. And I knew it had to be in Demon Wars. And I'm having an absolute blast and uh, loving it tremendously. And I hope that the readers really start paying a little bit of attention to that series because I think it's going some pretty good places and I like where it's been already anyway. Okay. You know, so if I name my favorite books of all time, uh, two of the top five are Demon Wars books, mm -hmm. my favorite books. Uh, Mortalis which is the book I wrote to get myself through my brother's illness as he was dying. Um, really special book to me, on, and I think it's one of the best things I've ever done. Uh, the Highwayman, which gave me a character I, I absolutely loved. Um, and again, you know, I, one, of the things, one of the things I do as a writer is I'm always wondering how someone else sees the world and why. 
And, you know, I know a guy whose brother has cerebral palsy and you see him walking around town and, you know, he has a special car. And I always wondered what would it be like, you know, going through life like that, especially when the world was a lot less kind than it is now. When I was growing up, the world was a lot less kind, I think, in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, it was more civilized than it is now with the Internet. But particularly face to face in school, the world was not kind at all when I was a kid. And so... I was really proud of that book. I've had a lot of people write to me about that book, particularly if they have children who have challenges that they're facing. Um, so I, I was proud of that. And then the other books I would put in that top five would be probably Homeland, which I adored. The Companions, which breathed new life to me with the Companions of the Hall. And probably Hero now, which is probably the most satisfied I've ever felt at the end of a book. Hmm. Excellent. Well, we look forward to checking it out in October, and I'm sure we'll be having another conversation about November time. Only if you promise me that you're not going to softball me. <laughs> of, I'm serious. <laughs> Have One we ever softballed I like you? Coming on this show is that you've got the guts to ask me. You know what? Mike what and I happened with Caddy Bree? And how Mike do you and I had this conversation uh, when, when I asked him to come on and join me for the interview. He's like, well, can I ask these kinds of questions? I'm like, I never pull punches with Bob, and he always seems to have a good time. So, Well, no, you know, you, I really don't want to say for the 400th time who would win a fight between Dritz and Luke Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is obvious. Well, Who's the question is. Who, yeah, and how many um, um, drow would cast spells on Drizzt before he fights Luke Skywalker? Yeah. <laughs> That's now the new exactly. variable for that question. Exactly. But no, it, it, is, it is refreshing to have people look at the little things I'm hinting at and then calling me on them. We're happy to be that person. my thoughts as I sit down and write the next book. We're happy to be that, that person for you. You certainly are one of them. Yeah, another one's Mary Elizabeth Hart, who runs Mysterious Galaxy mm. out in San Diego. I made the mistake of well, of sitting on panels with her at San Diego Comic Con, and boy, you better be awake and ready for it because she's going to hit you with both barrels. Very good. I adore. Good. good. She's brilliant. But yeah, no. So I'm glad you did that. And and it, to me, it's like I think those are valid questions. I hope my answers were satisfying, or at least clarified. Uh, let me ask you one. Okay. What did you think? Because you just surprised me on Penelope where you said you liked it. Mm -hmm. What did you think of the Gromf Caddy Bree thing? Uh, I didn't like it. Well, are you asking me or are you asking Jeff? Oh, <laughs> either one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't like it. And so one, one reason I didn't like it is I, I, I kind of like Jarlaxle. If, you know, if Jarlaxle had done something like that, and now that you've, you know, now that you compared to Donald Trump, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. But, I didn't like that um, either. I want to take that back. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you take it back. I, I think what you meant was the ego is kind of there, and that I can agree with and not lose face in the character. But uh, you, you brought up a very interesting point with Artemis, and actually my, my wife and I were talking about it. She read Crystal Shard just recently, and um, and, and she's actually reading, uh, she's, she went through that whole series, the whole Halfling's Gem and, and all of that. And and I was, you know, without spoiling the, this book for her, I was talking about about that scene. And I said, wasn't it interesting that Artemis, who is clearly a murderer, right? He murdered innocent people and he murdered people just to get back at Cadbury in certain scenes. But he never touched her, right? He never touched her sexually. There was never even a threat of sexual of, of sexual assault in him. He made it very clear that that wasn't a threat. 
And it made it possible for me to like him, even as a villain, even back then, you know, I, I, I liked him. But then with with Gromp, and granted, it wasn't, you know, direct physical, it, it wasn't a direct physical assault, but I was talking to Jeff about it earlier, and it's like, but with psionics, we, we don't have that in the real world, so we don't know what that's like. And it sure seemed like it to me. I don't know that I can like Gromp again. Uh, maybe that was the point, though. And, and I, I, I guess... I guess what I would what I would say is is that the kind of motivation I need to to, to hate somebody, or are there other ways to do that? But that's a, you know that's yeah. no. I think there's a lot of reasons to hate Gromp. Yeah. Well, and, but, and yeah, no, good, good. That's uh, like I like that response. Yeah, and I I think the thing that bothers me about it is that I feel like Gromp kind of completely got away with it. Right? Yeah, that's, that's the other part, the the, for, the forgiveness, the forgiveness angle, right. And not that not that she not, not that she shouldn't be able to move on and move past it or whatever, but like it, it all sort of wrapped up with a nice little bow on it. And I'm like, no, there 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 needed to be like fallout and consequences that that I maybe could still happen. But um, yeah, I, I felt like he kind of got away with it. Well, what did he get? Oh, forgiveness from her. Yeah. What did he get away? Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Get away with it implies he got something. It doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't get away get something out of it. He he violated her to yeah. to a degree, but and... he wasn't there. Okay, right. He implanted a magical suggestion. That's well, all he did. If nothing yeah, else, he gets the satisfaction that he that he totally screwed with her head, and he knows it. That he won that encounter, and she walked into his tent through his wards. Mm-hmm. And if he hadn't coincidentally had a ma- dispel magic spell available to him, right. <laughs> would have been buried under 600 pounds of angry cat. Mm-hmm. I thought it was 800 pounds. 600. <laughs> After she ate Gromf, it would have been close to the eight. <laughs> so I don't know what he got away with. He tried to tempt her and failed. Yeah, it felt it felt more vi- that more violating than just a simple temptation, though, because of the the psionic intrusion. Except he wasn't there. It was just the suggestion. Yeah, I hear you. I'm just still rooting for a comeuppance. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. That's cool. I'm not actually disagreeing with you. The only yeah. person, the only person who can disagree i mean who can determine the relationship of a reader to a book as the reader of the book right if you came away with that then you came away with that mm-hmm. and i i respect that that's the way you came away with it very good i appreciate it's not that. the way i came away with it when i wrote it mm-hmm. but it's it i i on purpose left it ambiguous mm-hmm. how much did grump actually put in caddy Bree's mind and how much did caddy Bree put in her mind with the suggestion yeah, which puts a whole uh, unfirmness un- in her relationship with Drist into the whole scenario too. That on, on, and on Drist end as well. I don't. Are we going to pretend that but. people <laughs> people in very stable relationships don't occasionally have a fleeting thought? Somewhere oh no. Else? I yeah, mean, I, don't, I don't know that any of that bothers me. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't know that. I don't know that any of that bothers me. Uh, yeah, if anything, that's all that, fine. that humanizes Jimmy Carter, who's so good that cancer ran away from him, <laughs> lusted in his heart. Remember. Mm-hmm. You yeah, old enough and, to and, and actually, the, the idea that he, she might be struggling with the idea that she finds Gromp sexually attractive 
particularly because he's like this super powerful archmage, and now she's growing into being a super powerful archmage. That's all. What happens when she told Penelope? Yeah, right. And she's like, "Ah, go for it." Yeah, Penelope's (laughs) like, "I'd hit that." Right. Right. (laughs) It's the it, it was the it was the you know, and again, it's one of these interesting things where because we don't have psionics in real life. There, there isn't a good direct real life metaphor right. for what happened. But the, to me, the way it was written was as good as direct sexual assault, right? He, if he's implanting suggestions in her mind of explicit, you know, sexual contact between the two of them, and it's unwanted by her, you know, the, the closest thing we have in our world is, is you know, physical sexual assault. Mm, That's okay. the way it felt to me. Yeah. Cool. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess I uh, we'll wrap it up at that, and because we've already gone almost an hour, and we still have a review to add to this episode, <laughs> so it's going to be a long one. <laughs> Should uh, I be so afraid I, of that review now? What's that? Should I be afraid of that review now? I I don't think you're going to hear anything in the review that we haven't already talked about, and I think it's all it's all fair. So I should be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> review hasn't hasn't happened yet. You you were yeah we we're not even recording yet. So. <laughs> We have the the hindsight now that we'll be able to look back and say, well, this is kind of what Bob said. So, no, it'll well, be a- again, take what I say as an unreliable narrative too. Narrative sure. because clarifying certain details isn't fair. Mm-hmm. Right. Like one of the reasons why when people do book discussions of my books, I don't join in on the internet mm-hmm. is because it's not fair to the people there. Mm-hmm. 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 So. Unless it's Chris Perkins messing with your character on Acquisitions Incorporated. I just don't watch it. You can get it all. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, with that, Bob, we want to say thank you and thanks again for joining us. We'll talk to you again in uh, November-ish. Uh, yeah. Sounds like a plan. All right. All right. And that is the end of the episode. Thank you, R.A. Salvatore, Mike Shea, and all of you for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links when you use Amazon or D&D Classics. A special extra shout-out to R.A. Salvatore. He was a really good sport. We, uh, I felt like we pushed him in, on some things. Is that fair, Mike? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I think uh, he, he actually enjoyed the fact that somebody took you know, the things that he's writing seriously and asked some, some deeper, more serious questions um, about some of those things and, and pushed him on some of that. He's, he's expressed his gratitude of being pushed in those ways. So uh, it's always awesome to talk to him and that he's willing to do that. I also want to thank Mike Shea. Mike? Thank you. Tell people where they can find you since you're here as a guest and not as a host. Slyflourish.com and Twitter.com slash Slyflourish. Awesome. And if you want to get a hold of us over here at The Tome Show, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com or you can call the biz line at 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. That's 919-BIZ-TOME. Call that line. Keep it ringing off the hook in the way that nobody does. And that episode. <laughs> Has anyone called the biz line lately? Uh, lately? No. Oh, people, uh, call the biz line, every please. Every now and then we mention it like this, and then I'll get like a few people that call in. But otherwise, um, I who think uses that, a, Who uses a phone? <laughs> well, there's that. Um, but there's also, I, I think some guy um, put his no- number in wrong with CVS. So every now and then I get a call on the biz line saying that so-and-so's prescription is ready to be picked up. <laughs> <laughs> but that's about it <laughs> alright well if uh, if you're going to Gen Con call the biz line and if you do 
I will take you to dinner. I can't make any Ooh. promises, but maybe Jeff Greiner will also be there. And I will I will send all the audio from the biz line over to James, and he will feature it on the roundtable. Ooh, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I will make that promise for James. <laughs> uh, well, that's episode 265, where we tore the Prince of Demons in half as we reviewed Maestro in this episode of... The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone. I'm not a wall.